And now let's hear the word of God from a selection of passages in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 4 through 7. And now, son of man, take a large clay brick and set it down in front of you. Then draw a map of the city of Jerusalem on it. Show the city under siege. Build a wall around it so no one can escape. Set up the enemy camp and surround the city with siege ramps and battering rams. Then take an iron griddle and place it between you and the city. Turn toward the city and demonstrate how harsh the siege will be against Jerusalem. This will be a warning to the people of Israel. Now lie on your left side and place the sins of Israel on yourself. You are to bear their sins for the number of days you lie there on your side. I'm requiring you to bear Israel's sins for 390 days, one day for each year of their sin. After that, turn over and lie on your right side for 40 days, one day for each year of Judah's sin. Meanwhile, keep staring at the siege of Jerusalem. Lie there with your arm bared and prophesy her destruction. I will tie you up with ropes so you won't be able to turn from side to side until the days of your siege have been completed. Now go and get some wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and emmer wheat, and mix them together in a storage jar. Use them to make bread for yourself during the 390 days you will be lying on your side. Ration this out to yourself, eight ounces of food for each day, and eat it at set times. Then measure out a jar of water for each day and drink it at set times. Prepare and eat this food as you would barley cakes. While all the people are watching, bake it over a fire using dried human dung as fuel and eat the bread. Then the Lord said, this is how Israel will be defiled. Oh, I'm sorry, will eat defiled bread in the Gentile lands to which I will banish them. Then I said, O sovereign Lord, must I be defiled by using human dung? For I've never been defiled before. From the time I was a child until now, I've never eaten any animal that died of sickness or was killed by other animals. I've never eaten any meat forbidden by the law. All right, the Lord said, you may bake your bread with cow dung instead of human dung. Then he told me, son of man, I will make food very scarce in Jerusalem. It will be weighed out with great care and eaten fearfully. The water will be rationed out drop by drop, and the people will drink it with dismay. Lacking food and water, people will look at one another in terror, and they will waste away under their punishment. Son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a razor to shave your head and beard. Use a scale to weigh the hair into three equal parts. Place a third of it at the center of your map of Jerusalem. After acting out the siege, burn it there. Scatter another third across your map and chop it with a sword. Scatter the last third to the wind, for I will scatter my people with the sword. Keep just a bit of the hair and tie it up in your robe. Then take some of these hairs out and throw them into the fire, burning them up. A fire will then spread from this remnant and destroy all of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is an illustration of what will happen to Jerusalem. I placed her at the center of the nations, but she has rebelled against my regulations and decrees and has been even more wicked than the surrounding nations. She has refused to obey the regulations and decrees I gave her to follow. 
The day of judgment is here. Your destruction awaits. The people's wickedness and pride have blossomed to full flower. Their violence has grown into a rod that will beat them for their wickedness. None of these proud and wicked people will survive. All their wealth and prestige will be swept away. The king and the prince will stand helpless, weeping in despair. And the people's hands will tremble with fear. I'll bring on them the evil they have done to others, and they will receive the punishment they so richly deserve. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I bet you're waiting for me to unpack that one, huh? This is going to require a lot of props, so I have a bucket full of props. Whew. Good morning, I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint Church, and we are in our second sermon in our Ezekiel sermon series. And uh, we are preaching through the whole Bible here at Waypoint, and we are at the point in our 10-year plan where we are actually preaching through the, the book of, of Ezekiel, and at the same time, we're going to also look at First and Second Thessalonians kind of in the middle. And then, so we're going to do Ezekiel, First and Second Thessalonians, and then go back to Ezekiel. And there is a method to that and a reason for that. But for this morning, uh, I want to make sure everybody got a handout. So sometimes when the passage is, you know, I just, I just want to, this, is, this helps us, this will help us today with this passage. So if you didn't get one, please raise your hand. And there's Steve on this side, and we got a few folks, Ben, they'll hand you one. All right, you can look at it, but try to pay attention to what I'm saying first, and then we'll, I'll tell you when to look at different parts of this handout. All right, so I'm sure many of you are really confused by what we just read. Uh, that was definitely interesting. Um, so I'm gonna, this is where we're headed this morning. What do we mean when we say that Ezekiel was a prophet? What is prophetic uh, apocalyptic literature? Sorry, I gotta get this guy in my back pocket. Why did God ask Ezekiel to do these strange enactments in the public square? That's probably the one you're most ready for, because I'm, I'm gonna explain some of this. I, I can't explain all of it, but I can definitely explain a lot of it. And what does this mean for us today? So let's jump right in. What do we mean when we say Ezekiel was a prophet? So in old, the Old Testament, uh, what was the role of an Old Testament prophet? The Old Testament prophet was functioning under the covenant God made with the descendants of Abraham after the Passover and the exodus from Egypt. He makes this covenant at Mount Sinai through Moses, and it's mediated and enforced starting with the early prophets, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, and then into the period of the judges, the only prophet that we know about in judges is Deborah, but there were others. And then starting with Samuel, as Israel moves from under the judges into a period of the monarchy, God makes a new class of prophets, and Samuel is kind of the first one of those. And, those, and if you look at the orange chart on your, your handout, you can kind of see that the early prophets were the mouthpiece or the leader. They bring, brought national guidance, maintenance of justice, spiritual overseers, and Moses and Deborah would be the early examples of that. Then the, the second kind of prophet, and then Samuel's the transition prophet. And then the next kind of prophets were when there was an actual king. 
And these prophets would speak from God and advise the king how to do right. And sometimes they would talk to the priest too. Uh, Israel had a problem. They would get God's favor, and then God would give them a lot of favor and give them blessing. A lot of it was material blessing, victories and battles that they weren't ready. They shouldn't have won. Imagine like a football team with, you know, the small team continue like a team going through the NCAA tournament, the small team continuing to win. They, that's what it was like for them. They continued to get favor and victory from God, and they became a wealthy, great nation when they, were at, when they weren't. But what happened is whenever they got favor and got, got stuff, what did they do? They're like, thanks, God. I'll take it from here. Right? It's a pattern for us, too. What do we do when God blesses us? Thanks, God. I got it. I'll take it from here. And they forgot their first love. And these prophets continually reminded the kings and the priests, turn back to God. Eventually, God, their sin, they, they don't listen to God. And God allows other nations, they, they lose the protection of God. And he allows other nations to come in. And there's this final group of prophets, sometimes called the writing prophets. Um, and Ezekiel is one of those. So that's where we are. That's an Old Testament prophet. If you look right at the top of your handout, this is from Douglas Stewart in a, a great book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's actually in the church library. Uh, very, very important book if, if you want to really dig deep into the Bible. But he says this, the Old Testament prophet's role. The prophets were covenant enforcement mediators. The, prophet mess, the prophet's message was not their own, but God's. The prophets were God's direct representatives. The prophet's message was not original. It was from an established covenant. All those are really, really important when we're thinking about Old Testament prophecy. So then, some of you might be like, well, what's the covenant? What's the covenant that God makes? Um, on your handout, if you look at the bottom, these are the major covenants of the Old Testament as we would teach them here at Waypoint. Um, and if you look, the first covenant is the one God makes with humanity before we sin. And then all, all the covenants after that are part of the covenant of grace. We are in rebellion against God. We sinned, but we turned from him. But he continues to make a series of covenants. He makes one in Genesis 3.15. He makes one with Noah. He makes one with, with Abraham. And then he makes a specific one with Moses that is, starts when he's on the mountain and he comes down and it's continued. I mean, he makes it before he goes and then he goes up on the mountain. And it's continued through the rest of what's called the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books. I mean, the, the last, the, from Exodus to Deuteronomy. And that's the covenant that these prophets are functioning other, are functioning under that God gave them the law, and he gave them the land, and he gave them his favor. And there's priests who are doing the ritual for forgiveness and, and the rituals that they needed to do to remember to keep God holy. Then there's the king and the court who are supposed to govern justly. And then God raises up prophets who are to make sure that the king and the priests and the people are following God. You get it? Got it? All right, so that's prophet. Um, some of you may have watched Veggie Tales. Jonah was a prophet. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. 
My kids used to watch it. Uh, so that's the context of where we're at. Now, I want to think about this covenant that God makes with Moses, and then we'll see how that relates to Ezekiel. So God is compassionate and gracious, patient and slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And God is serious about sin and evil in the world and the rebellion by his people against him. Let's look at Exodus 34, when after Moses, he goes up on Mount Sinai, and let's, let's look at what, what we see here. It says, so Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. This is the first time that they're hearing the name of God. And it means, it's Yahweh, it means I am, or I am who will always be. I am who I am. And, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. This, this statement here, I could preach four sermons on. It's so powerful in Old Testament history. I mean, in, in, in understanding God. But basically, when God reveals his name, he says, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh. Then he says, I am the compassionate and gracious God. The first adjectives God attaches to himself to relate to them is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. And at, that's toward the beginning when they get the covenant. And then at the end, after 40 years in the wilderness, Moses confirms the covenant and says this to the people. This is in Deuteronomy 25. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab in addition to the covenant he made with them in Horeb. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything. Then it goes on in verse 16. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and we passed through the countries on the way there. You saw among them decessible images and idols of wood and stone, silver and gold. Make sure that there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure that there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. See what he's doing? He's giving him the covenant, but he's like, I'm the good God. I'm the one you should trust. I'm the faithful one. These other things are just statues. They're not, they're not gonna, they seem like they might satisfy you, but they're not. Trust me. If you trust me, I'll give you everything you need. Does it sound familiar for us? I remember when I was a kid and I went to Sunday school and I was like, why do we learn about the Israelites so much? And then I think it clicked about fifth or sixth grade. Oh. They're like us. <laughs> Thanks, God. I'll take it from here. I don't need you anymore. You start drifting toward all these things that you think will make you happy, and you realize ultimately our satisfaction and our happiness will only be found in Jesus. In Deuteronomy 30, I won't read the whole thing, but he basically says, even if you've been banished to the most distant lands, that he'll bring them back. And I love this. We'll go to verse 6. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So when God makes a covenant with the people, 
he not only says, so normally a covenant in ancient, in ancient times was the greater king would make a covenant with the smaller king. So like Egypt would make a covenant with a smaller city state. And they would say, hey, I'll protect you. Egypt would say, hey, I'll protect you, but you need to send these like, um, send stuff to us, like tributes and taxes. And if you mess up or you're diso- if you betray us in any way, we'll kill your king. We'll cut you off and we'll destroy your people and we'll take over your... That's how covenants were made in the ancient Near East. That's the context of this. But when God makes a covenant, he's like, hey, I'm, obviously I'm greater than you. I'm going to make this covenant with you. But if you mess up, and he's kind of like, when you mess up, I'm still going to take care of you. That's good news, y'all. I wish I had time to go into each covenant. We are going to do an Old Testament survey later in the spring, and we're going to look at these covenants. And it's good news. So even when God makes the covenant with them and tells them that they're, they're going to fail, he's like, but it's okay. I'm going to take care of you. And that's literally what's happening in Ezekiel. The passage that Eric had just read, the end of this morning, this morning we're looking at Ezekiel 4 through 7, chapters 4 through 7. Right at the end of 7, it says, The day of judgment is here. Your destruction awaits. The people's wickedness and pride has blossomed to full flower. Their violence has grown like a rod that will beat them for their wickedness. None of these proud and wicked people will survive. All their wealth and prestige will be swept away. Why did they even have a kingdom and all that wealth to be violent against other people? To dishonor God with, their, with everything they had? Because God gave it to them. And how long does God put up with them? 400 years. 400 years of people warning them. Finally, he's like, I got to do something. You're not going to learn. You love your wealth and you love your power and you love these things so much. You don't love me. I'm not a God of violence and and wealth and and sin and idols and and all these things that you think you need. I'm the God of of mercy and justice and, and compassion. Turn to me. Unfortunately, God had to follow through on his promise. And that's where we're at in the story. That's what an Old Testament prophet is, and that's the prophet that, the kind of prophet that Ezekiel is at this moment. So what is prophetic uh, apocalyptic literature? So when you hear the word apocalypse, what do you think? What does it literally mean in modern English? The end, right? I think for us now, it's normally linked with zombies. I don't know why. We, uh, we've, we've kind of come up with zombies. Maybe because it's bad to kill people in a movie, but if you kill zombies, it's like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know why we've, 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 we've fascinated on zombies. But actually the word apocalypse, there's a verb form and a noun form in Greek. And both forms just mean to uncover or to expose or to reveal. The reason why it's linked to the end of the world is because the first thing John says in what we call Revelation, the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, it says this is the revelation. It uses that word. And a lot of what John talks about, not all, but a lot of it is about what's happening in heaven at that moment and then what will happen at the end. So that's how the two. But really an apocalypse, an apocalyptic moment is when God opens up the heavens and lets us see glimpses of what's going on there, even though we're outside of the heavenly realm. 
Uh, it's usually a moment when something from the heavenly realm meets the earthly realm, revealing things, including the plans or intentions of God. So the vision or the, this, this apocalypse, this vision, this revealing is to help the people here on earth who are in the earthly realm understand what God's doing. Some famous apocalypses in the Bible are Jacob's stairway to heaven dream, Moses meeting God at the burning bush, Moses going up to Mount Sinai when God gives him the covenant. In the New Testament, Paul has at least two of these epiphany moments, uh, one where he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about his vision and revelation that he got from God that sustains him in his ministry. We actually preached a sermon on this not that long ago. Um, the most famous apocalypse is Revelation, the book of Revelation, or John's Revelation at the end of the New Testament. Um, so we look at the revelations, these heavenly realms, you know, that God gives a vision of kind of what's going on to encourage, inspire, convict the person who's getting it so that this, he or she can tell the people, hey, let's turn back to God. God gave me this so that we can turn back to him. That's the function of this type of prophet. Ezekiel is one of these. Last week, Pastor Lawrence preached. I don't know why I pointed there. Maybe because when he talked about the vision and the wheels, he was over here. He talked about the wheels and the eyes. Erica actually found out that there is a phobia of, little, of a lot of dots or holes together. It's a real thing. So when Lawrence said it's pomegranate, all the eyes, that's, that's a real thing. Uh, for somebody, if you didn't listen to the sermon, now you got to go back and listen to that. But so that's the vision. Ezekiel gets this vision. So that's what is happening here. God is allowing Ezekiel to have a glimpse of what's going on in the heavenly realm and what he's going to do. But it's all based on promises that were already made in the covenant that God made with them. Tracking? There's a lot of stuff here. But we need all this to unpack it. I'm going to leave you with this quote from Ellen Davis. She's an Old Testament scholar. She says this, Prophetic pro poetry often takes the familiar things known or readily imaginable and connects it to what seems to be distant because it is hard to imagine or admit. This is what's going on uh, with these people. And they use a lot of poetry. If you read Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, there's a lot of poetry, a lot of imagery, because they're trying to, to link the two things together. We today use YouTube and TikTok and these other things to convey these type of, to tell something. Uh, but this is, that was their method of doing that. So this is what's happening here in the early parts of Ezekiel. There is this, Ezekiel is getting this vision, and he is to do things to, to tell the people what God wants them to hear. All right. Now the question you've been waiting for, and the props. Why did God ask Ezekiel to do these strange enactments in the public square? Let's watch a very short video on Bible Project that just shows us exactly where we are in the Ezekiel story that will help us, uh, and then we'll, we'll close up with that. The book of the prophet Ezekiel 
Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city. And they spared the city, but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile, and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that, and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp, and it's his 30th birthday, no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching, and then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces. And then he saw four wheels, one by each creature. And then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform. And then on that platform is a throne. And then sitting on that throne is this human-like creature glowing and shrouded in fire. And then all of a sudden Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. He calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. Now the word glory, in Hebrew it's kavod, it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, in Jerusalem. And so the first section of the book opens to explore that question as Ezekiel begins to accuse Israel of rebellion. So God first speaks to Ezekiel from the throne chariot, and he commissions him as a prophet. Ezekiel is to accuse Israel of breaking their covenant agreement with God in a couple ways. Israel has given their allegiance to other gods and has been worshiping idols, and this has all led to rampant social injustice and violence. And so as a result, God appoints Ezekiel to warn the people. The first Babylonian attack that took Ezekiel into exile is going to be matched by another. And Jerusalem, its temple, all face imminent destruction. So Ezekiel uses words and more to get his message across. He also performs sign acts. These were a form of street theater. Ezekiel would go out in public and start behaving in these really bizarre ways that were like parables of his prophetic message. So he was supposed to build a tiny model of Jerusalem and then stage an attack on it. Or he was to shave off all of his hair and then chop it up with a sword. Or the most extreme, he was to play the role of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. And he would lay on his side for over a year eating food cooked over poop as a sign of the nasty food that people will have to eat during the siege of Jerusalem. And perhaps the most disheartening thing of all is the bad news God gave Ezekiel that no one was going to listen to him. Israel would reject him because of their rebellious and hard heart. And this recalls Moses' description of the people after the wilderness rebellions, when he predicted that exile would one day happen, and Ezekiel had the unfortunate privilege of seeing it all come to pass. And so, a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. I hope that helped, kind of set the stage. Now the props come out. Ezekiel bread. (laughs) All right, so what's going on? While I'm setting up, we're going to look at just a a five-point summary or outline of, of 
of Ezekiel, all, 30, all 48 chapters. So the first chapter, the first section is just kind of an introduction, the vision that God gives Ezekiel, setting the stage for the rest of it, this commission and, and these visions. And then the, the third part is enactments, visions, and oracles of Jerusalem's coming doom. And today's thing is, is some of these enactments. And then after that, God will give oracles against Israel's neighbors. And then finally, oracles and visions of Israel's restoration. God never just talks about the destruction or the punishment. He also talks about the way that he's going to redeem and save his people. That's good news. So what's going on in chapter 4? So we've got, well, it'll just be up on the screen, but God asks him, son of man, it's interesting he always calls him son of man, like, or that means the human one, uh, take a large clay brick, this isn't probably very large, and draw a map of the city. I've, I asked Tony for some blocks, and this is what we got. So make a, make a little kind of display clay model. And he's doing this in the public square. Probably they're in Babylon, but the, like it said in the video that they have a, like a refugee camp probably outside. And he's setting this up where the people will walk by every day and see it. And he sets up a little thing and he's supposed, I didn't have an iron skillet to, to smash it with to show you all, but you, you get the idea. So, what, so that one's pretty straightforward. He's just showing, he's asking the people, he's, ask, he's asking Ezekiel to build a model and they would see it and they'd walk by it every day and they'd realize this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Now they're in Babylon, 700 miles away. Prophets wear robes, right? So this also is my Moses robe for VBS for the kids. Now the older kids are in here. I'm not going to spoil it for the younger kids, but they, they don't know I'm not really Moses. No. <laughs> so, so you have this, so he's told to build these models. And then the, there's this weird one where he's like, Lay on your left side, I'm going to, my left side, for 390 days. I'm not actually going to lay down, but one day for each year of the sin, and then turn over to your right side for 40 days, one day for each year of Judah's sin. Remember, God's been patient with them for a long, long time. He says, meanwhile, keep staring at the siege of Jerusalem. So just imagine the scene. Like, he's supposed to, like, lay in the square. Now, not 24-7. He's doing this at different points. The, the text is pretty clear. It's not like he's always laying there. He goes home and sleeps or whatever, but he's doing this at public times. And this is literally a public reenactment. He's supposed to just kind of do this and maybe, I don't know, do the frying pan thing or be smacking it, I don't, saying stuff. We, do, we don't really know, but every day for 390 days, for a long period of time, they walk by and see him doing this to remember what's going to happen and to, to remember their sin. Now, on your chart, earlier on in the uh, period of, of, the, of the prophets, if you look at the categories of prophetic uh, oracle, there's indictment, judgment, instruction, and aftermath. Indictment is what some of the earlier prophets did. They would warn the people, and then the people would relent, and God would show them favor and, and remove what he said he was going to do. But eventually, God says, I'm going to do it. So what Ezekiel's proclaiming is judgment, 
uh, an instruction that, of what's going to happen. And then he's talking a little bit about the aftermath, which he'll do that later on. So he's not really, he's hoping that even in this demonstration for a year, maybe the people might turn and repent. They don't even do that. I guess they're just like, Ezekiel, you're crazy. They should have known because they thought Isaiah was crazy. There were previous prophets. Ezekiel's toward the end of the prophets. There have been a lot of other prophets before him who the people thought were crazy. So for some reason, God asks him to do this, and he's doing it, and we're trying to unpack the reason. And I think the 390 days is pretty obvious. He's just trying to, he's just trying to say, hey, y'all, like, this is what's going to happen. This is, this is what's going to happen, and he's doing a street performance. I think a modern parallel to this might be like a documentary or a movie that you make to help people see something, to make awareness of something, right? That's our modern way of bringing awareness. Most people don't go to like a public square. You don't go to downtown Durham or Franklin Street and do a performance to warn people. Some people might, but that, 100 years ago, that would have been pretty common even in America before the, the means of media that we have. But now if you want to kind of portray something or teach a lesson or warn people of something, you would use other things. So that's what God is asking Ezekiel to do here. Uh, now, he says to bake bread with cow dung instead of human dung. And all this seems really gross. All right, originally you'd bake it out of human dung. And this is just showing that in their, in their culture, they had these dietary laws. And he's saying it's going to get so bad in Jerusalem that they can't even follow the dietary laws. That they're going to, and this is, actually happens, nomadic people have to use dung of like yaks and other things to, for heat. So it's, it's not super common, but it is something that some cultures will need to do is, is use, use cow dung more for heat than for cooking um, or yak dung or other animal dung. So it's, it's very dramatic. It's like the grossest thing that, it's as gross as it sounds. And God is like, I loved y'all so much for 400 years. And this is what it came to. I hope this wakes you up so that you'll turn to me. It's interesting that he gives them these ingredients, wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and that the guys who made Ezekiel bread found out that this is a super cool, complete protein. I, I bet you most people who buy Ezekiel bread have no idea of the rest of the passage. And I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming that they didn't use cow dung to bake this. I'm assuming they just used regular old ovens. So, uh, I don't know if these guys are Christians or not, or how, where this came from, but we can lay on our side. So at, when you go home tonight, you can go to Sprouts. That's where I got this. It's pretty expensive, though. This, this is not cheap. Um, and you can lay on your side. That's my action point today. Lay on your side and eat Ezekiel bread. I'm just kidding. Don't, you, don't have, you don't have to do that. Uh, he also, pretty good. You could live off this for 390 plus 40 days, right? Not bad. You start getting sick of it. Then he tells him to, to cut his hair, and he uses that as an illustration. So again, all these illustrations are just him standing in the street, trying to, it's a warning and an encouragement to the people. It's a warning that unfortunately God has to do this because of their sin. 
And it's ridiculous. He has to do this for 390 days plus 40 days because that's, he's trying to, the, the point of the, the main point of the illustration is just how patient God was with the people. How patient God was. So that's all I got. I hope this helps you see how a prophet works and what a prophet's doing and what Ezekiel's doing. Now, the amazing thing about this prophecy of Ezekiel is Ezekiel's the main Old Testament book where we get the New Covenant. We get, if you were read, to read Paul's writings, you find that he relies on the New Covenant teach theology of Ezekiel over and over and over again. Because the story doesn't end here. The story doesn't end, I wish I had a pot. I'm gonna, the second service is going to get the pot. The story doesn't end with the destruction and the cow dung and the, and the bread, you know. The story ends with the God who restores his people. And not only, he, he doesn't even restore them in the way that they could even imagine. So let's, what, is all this, what does this mean for us today? It means a lot for us. And throughout the sermon series in Ezekiel, we're going to unpack all these different ways Ezekiel, how important Ezekiel is to the gospel and redemptive history. Old Testament uh, scholar James Robson says this. He, he sums up Ezekiel with this sentence. This is what Ezekiel teaches. Align yourself with the God who has acted justly in judgment on Judah and with the Israel that God is restoring. That's the point of all this. Again, the major covenants in the Bible I showed you last time. There's this covenant God makes with Moses, which is temporary. But a continuation of the covenant he makes with Abraham, which is eternal. And the continuation of the covenant he makes with David was what there, there always will be a king on the throne. The, etern the, Moses, the Mosaic covenant was not eternal. It was, it was a temporary covenant. But the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant is eternal. And where do we learn about the new covenant? We start hearing about it in Deuteronomy, glimpses of it. Like the passage I read to you earlier in Deuteronomy 30 where he would circumcise their heart. But put that, please put the slide up. Keep it up for another second. But if you look, I, I highlighted it. Ezekiel, the promises of the restoration of Jerusalem is where we really begin to understand what the Messiah is going to do, what this new covenant is like. So to end this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 10 and 11. We're in the gospel reading plan. Many of you have just recently read Matthew 10 and 11. Matthew 10 and 11, Jesus is functioning like an Old Testament prophet. Talking about prophets being rejected and John the Baptist, the last of the Mosaic covenant. I mean, prophets, and then even calling John the Baptist Elijah. Listen to this in Matthew 11. This is Jesus speaking. I tell you the truth, of all who ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And from the, from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. For before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to this present time. And if you're willing to accept this, I will say he is Elijah. Jesus is saying that 
John the Baptist is the final prophet who prepares the way for the Messiah, for the anointed one. The prophets, the one the prophet said would come. Anyone who hears should listen and understand. And then Jesus continues on. Jesus is on a, like, if you read Matthew 10 and 11, he is going after the sin of the people. The Pharisees are being unjust and, and causing a lot of problems. He is being prophetic. He is laying down the law. And then he ends the section with this. This is how he ends his section about prophecy and like telling the people, you better listen. You need to turn to God. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. And this word reveal is the word apocalypse. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal the same apocalypse. So how do we get revealed to God? How do we get the, the apocalypse? You think Jesus is going to lay down the law here. You got to do all the stuff, right? What does he say? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the message of the good news of Jesus. He reveals himself to us when we have a childlike faith, and we come to him, and he says, hey, this life is hard. You can't do it on your own. But come to me, and I will... I'm not going to take you out of the world, but I'm going to put you in the world, and I'm going to be with you, and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How many of us do you need rest for your souls? Yeah. All right. I got to end. I'm going long. In our staff meeting, we were looking at this, and Lacey, uh, one of our staff members, said, I love it how Jesus can reveal himself to an eight-year-old and a person in prison who's done terribly hard bad things because both people need to come to Jesus like a child we're called to be faithful humble followers of Jesus align yourself with the God who has acted justly in history despite humanity's continued evil who continually shows patience and compassion who is a God of covenant faithfulness who sent Jesus and fulfills the promises of the new covenant with the kingdom that Jesus brings and his coming final restoration of all things so what's, my, what's the action point? Start by knowing Jesus. Align yourself with Jesus. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're doing it as a church. Join us. Jump right in. I think we're on, what day is it? The 14th? We're on, we're on Matthew 14 today. Jump, jump in. Know Jesus. Join with his church by the power and guidance of his Holy Spirit. Jesus is the final and perfect prophet. He's also the perfect priest. He's also the perfect king. He's also the perfect human. He's the final sacrifice. I didn't even talk about in the video, it says that maybe what Ezekiel was doing when he was representing the scapegoat at the Day of Atonement, which Jesus is the final all the things that needed to be happen at the Day of Atonement so the people could be forgiven of their sins. Jesus is the final one of those. He's the final animals that were sacrificed. He's the final scapegoat. 
He's the complete and final Passover lamb. And he has fully revealed himself to us if we come to him like a child. And we are all welcome at his table and the new covenant in his blood. That's what he says when he gives us the Lord's Supper. He says, this cup is the new covenant. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah teach us about this. Ezekiel teaches us about this new covenant that was promised. Align yourself with Jesus with a childlike faith. Jesus is the one who holds all the world in his hands and at the same time took on flesh, became human, and lived with us and died for us to save us. And he reveals himself to us and says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. I really believe if we were to walk by Jesus every day, if he was doing this display for us, this is what he would say. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. God, it's, it's, it's tough for us, you know, 3,000 years removed from these passages to, to see how you were acting in history. But if we really look at it, we can see your faithfulness, your goodness, that you love us. And I thank you that when you came and you make a covenant with us, that you say, I'm going to do both sides of the deal. Just turn to me. Just trust me. The things of this world are enticing, but I'm better. I will give you everything you need, God. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that you didn't destroy us, but you came and you saved us and you give us new life in you. May we be a body of people who believe this and live this out each day. In Jesus' name, amen.